0: So, I'm doing something two straight Sundays, somewhat risky, but I like taking risk, right? And that is that I am actually taking part of my daily thunder series and I'm sticking it into my Sunday message. Now, if you ask me, why are you doing that, Eric? You need to realize I have been spending so much time focused on the topic of the unreached and the focused period of time between, like, somewhere around the 1940s, you know, it was World War II time to the late 1960s, Erie Jaya, Papua New Guinea. And when you spend as much time as I've been spending on that, and then it comes to preparing a sermon on something different than that, it's extra hard. And so I just sort of looked heavenward and I'm like, God, would you mind uh, if we just sort of stayed true to the topic here? Uh, because this is where my meditation has been and it's been exhilarating for me. And so this is part five of my Daily Thunder series. So if you don't know my Daily Thunder podcast, I'm guessing if you just, you know, Eric Ludi Daily Thunder, Nathan Johnson, Daily Thunder, something like that, it's going to come up, but we do it five days a week. And if you've been here during the semester, you know, because you've been hit hard uh, this week with some doozy messages from this series. This is a pretty intense series that's called Daring to Do as Stanley Dale. And the subtitle or sub theme is because the unreached can't reach themselves. And so it's this idea of just being awakened afresh in our missionary zeal as the church to remember that there is a lost and dying world out there that needs to hear Jesus. So we're going to dive into that uh, with part five, the Savior in the thicket. And this is almost, I could almost say this is like story time with Eric. I'm basically just going through story today. This is a, it's a, a very unique Reflection on a theme that I have covered many times from different angles. It's just sort of a key biblical theme, and I'll explain that as I go. But when you see the 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 title, "The Savior in the Thicket," it sounded sort of like uh, Papua New Guinea ish. You know, the Savior in the thicket. So that's that's why I went with that title. But you know, you've heard of a ram caught in a thicket, Uh and that idea, as we're going to see in Genesis 22 is actually throughout the Bible, and it's throughout history. Anyone who follows God begins to recognize that in that moment of need, God has seen ahead of time that there was something required. And he is the sort of God that supplies it. And that's what it means to be a provider. A provider. Pro means before, and it comes from the word vision, provision. Vision is sight. He sees that which we need before we get there. And in missions this is, is huge. this is huge because you are going to a tribe in Irian Jaya that, for all practical purposes, seems like the light of the gospel has never been there. The light of truth has never been there, and they are living in such depravity. I mean, they're head-hunting cannibals. Uh, they are Satan worshipers, if you want to say it that way. They serve the dark spirits. And witch doctors rule and control the villages, I and mean, superstition reigns, uh, and it's terrible. Okay, that's just my quick summary. It's terrible. How could God prepare that people to hear the truth when they're not even open to it? There's no light even shining there. And then, but as a missionary, you need to know that God has done a work to prepare them to receive what you have to bring. And this is part of what it means to be a missionary. You need to know that God goes before you. It's not just your own strength that's going to change them. It's actually God that does the preparing of you and them and of the response. And so just even right now, we may not be going to the Sawi tribe in southwestern Erie and Jaya, but we do have a Sawi tribe. It might be right down the road here. We have a whole bunch of people that don't know Jesus right around us right now. And they are predisposed to reject what we have to share, just like the Sawi tribe. And so, what do we need? We need a savior in the thicket. So, we're going to focus on Don and Carol Richardson, uh, who actually are going to arrive in southwestern Irian Jaya, uh, which is Papua New Guinea, just above uh, Australia it's now part of indonesia in 1962 as missionaries and they're going to go to a tribe who has never seen a tuon which can be translated as you know the white guy uh, right or uh, there there's different translations i've heard i'm not sure if it's just the white guy or if it's the long nose uh, white guy uh, you know they used to think by you know rubbing their nose so I, a white guy could be a very smart guy you know because he has a long nose and has a lot of you know wisdom to draw from uh, but so, varying uh, perspectives on what Tuon would mean, but they are Tuon. So his name is uh, Don, so he was Tuon Don. I've always thought that uh, was pretty funny. Uh, you guys didn't laugh as much on that one. Uh, so, the Savior in the Thicket, the classic storyline of the Kingdom of Heaven. So, Genesis twenty-two thirteen. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. God is going to commission Abraham to take his only son and offer him on a mountain that God would show him. And Abraham is going to obey this, as extraordinary of a task as this would be, and he is going to walk all the way to the point of even raising the knife, and he is ready to Enact precisely what God has asked of him to do, even though it is shocking to even consider being asked to do do this, let alone doing it in obedience and God is going to stop him. You see God knows that there is the need of an offering, and I, I always sort of picture this ram okay' that 's what we know, know him as a lamb a ram it 's an offering, and you know when he 's hanging around I, I this is a three day journey so here 's my Mental thought is that maybe he was hanging around three days uh, away in Abraham's zone, and he heard rumor that Abraham is like one of those uh, Hebrews that sacrifices uh, offerings unto God. And so this guy's like, you know what, I'm out of here. Sort of a Jonah type of story, and goes on a, a wandering journey. He's like, where are you going, little ram? Well, I'm getting as far away from here as possible. And then God, meanwhile, is like, you know what, uh, Abraham, I need you to go somewhere. I'll show you where. Uh, and then this ram is like trying to get away and so it happens to get caught in the thicket right where God just, I don't know, how did, how did Abraham get led right there? And so how all these things work together, you have the rebellious character that's like, I don't want God. And then you have the one that saying God, I'm willing to go wherever you lead me. And then pff, God matches them in just the perfect way. And this is just the God storyline right there. Because we are on both sides of that storyline. We're the ones that were rebellious and we are the ones that tried to get away from God. Remember that time when God was speaking clearly to you and you didn't want to hear it? And you knew precisely what he wanted you to do. So you're like, put your fingers in your ear and you're like, making a lot of noise to act like you couldn't hear it. Okay. You're that rebellious little ram. Okay. But God has a way of leading you into the thicket at just the right time so that he could work in your life in a powerful way. okay? So it goes both ways. As the Abraham character in the story that's needing to be obedient, that we're willing to be led of God where he leads us and trust that he is going to make provision precisely for what we need when we get there. So we're gonna go through the story and we're gonna go back and forth between the story of Esther and the story of Don and Carol Richardson. Sort of a funny combination of stories, right? But Esther is an amazing story. Most people, if, if, if you were to look through the Bible and give sort of a global view, it says, what's the purpose of Esther? Esther doesn't even use the name of God in it, which is really strange. It's the only book of the Bible that doesn't actually have the name of God uh, in it. It doesn't even say God. Uh, it's like, what a strange uh, book of the Bible that is. Oh, it's profound in how it shows God, though. And most people would say well, it shows the providence of God. So when I say provision or provide, that's providence is the God behavior of seeing ahead of time and making supply for it. And so that's providence, and that's exactly what we're going to see in Esther. That's what we're also going to see in the story of Don and Carol Richardson. So the plot of Haman against the Jews. Haman is an agagite. So, if you've read the, the story of Esther, then you know Haman. I mean, Haman's just the bad guy of the story. So, you, when you even say his name, you want to go boo. But he's just a bad guy. And so, he's an Agagite who seems to have something against the Jews. If you knew what an Agagite was, you'd understand why. King Agag, many, many uh, generations before, was hewn down by the prophet Samuel. Uh, God had asked. Saul to kill all the Amalekites and he killed, you know, the bad parts of it, but he kept the king and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen alive. And the king's name was Agag. And so when you have a descendant of such a history, you can imagine why he might have a little bone to pick with the Israelites. And so as a result, you see this tension uh, from the very beginning of the story. He's symbolic of that which opposes the light. He is the antagonist in the story and uh, he's going to have a plot against the Jews. And so these are just some very quick insights into the story. Esther 3, verse 8 through 9, Haman said to King Asuharis, "There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. It is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. So there is a Conspiracy of darkness against the truth and against the people that adhere to the truth. And it's not just in our generation. Some of us are just shocked to see that people are conspiring to destroy righteousness in our generation. That's an ancient plot. And this plot line has been going on for a long time. And that's why it's important for us to remember the storyline of the kingdom God wins. Just a fresh remembrance of that actually does help in times of ever-increasing darkness. This was a time of increasing darkness. If you were a Jew hanging out in basically the great kingdom of the earth at the time, and you had the king who had all power and all authority, and when he made a decree, it was done. And he decrees that you and your family and every family you know and love and is going to be wiped out, annihilated in one day. Whew. You know, that, that's, that's a little more stiff than some of the things we're facing today. I just want to you know, remind you of that. We're dealing with a pretty uh, intense situation here. Esther 5.14, so Haman had the gallows made that Mordecai might be hanged on it. So Mordecai, you know, out of all, the, Haman hates the Jews. And maybe he hates the Jews even as much as he does because he really hates Mordecai. Okay, Mordecai really gets under his skin and Mordecai Esther by the way is the what niece niece of Mordecai and so he's he's a critical character in this whole schematic but because of Haman's revulsion for Mordecai he is going to build a gallows and if you talk to Nathan he would say the ancient uh, shape of the gallows would have been the shape of a cross so he is going to erect something very likely in the shape of a cross to hang the Jew on Isn't that an amazing statement, to hang the Jew on? And yet, if you know the story, there's a little uh, twist coming, but I don't want to give that away. No spoilers, okay? No spoilers. So Esther 4, 7 through 12, and Mordecai told him, so this is uh, the informant that is going to communicate back and forth between Esther and him, okay? So there's a problem. Haman has declared that he's going to wipe out all the Jews. And this is even before he's going to build the gallows specifically for Mordecai. It's like, we have a special death for Mordecai. (laughs) It's going to be the death of, as we would call it, the cross. Okay, this is, we have a special death for the Jew. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, that he might command her to go into the king and make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathaq, who's the guy, returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death." except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. So let's see if we can get into the story a little, because sometimes when you read these ancient stories, you're just like, not a long ago, yeah, yeah, that happened. However, what you have is a terrible situation, a darkness that looks like it has the upper hand. And there is someone that could do something, but that someone is reasoning like we would. If I do something, I could die. Yes, but if you don't do something, you could also die. I mean, come on, guys, what are we thinking? And yet, just think about how we function today as the church. We have an ever-increasing darkness that is spreading over this world, over this nation that we're in. And you could say the same thing. Esther's like, yeah, but if I do something, I could die. And I can just imagine Mordecai looking back going, "Uh, excuse me, you're a Jew. (laughs) You do know that you fall under this same decree, don't you? You see, there isn't some special treatment in the decree. And you can imagine the king being a little put off at Haman when he discovers that in the end. However, Haman is sort of licking his chops here because the king is ignorant of what he's really up to. What Haman, boo, is up to. The same thing is true for us. Just imagine, you know, if you felt like if I told you about the needs in Irian Jaya, Papua New New Guinea back in 1955, and I'm like, look, there's a whole interior that has never been reached. We have people groups that have never heard the gospel. They have never been talked to about the truth, and they're living in darkness in captivity and enslavement to the devil. We need someone to go, and you are in a position to do something about it. Well, your appeal could sound very similar to this one. Uh, Excuse me, but when people do that, they could die. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Of course, that goes with the territory when you stand up against evil. You see, this is part of what we all need to work through. It's an Esther process, but I have a hunch Abraham walked through it too when he was being asked to take his only son to the mountain that God would show him. In other words, there's a challenge of soul where we have to make a decision. Are we going to choose self-interest or God-interest? So the plot of darkness against the saw we. Now we're going to transition into the story of Don and Carol Richardson. In 1962 through 1964 is when all of this is happening. And they are going to encounter a people that is very unfriendly to the gospel. And so Don, the reason they're going to let Don and Carol stay is because as Tuons, they have things that these tribes could use, like axes, and they don't want to lose their one Tuon. To have a Tuon is sort of a blessing to a village, even though Tuans seem to come with a message attached to them, and the Tuons seem to press that message. Well, they're not interested in the message, they're interested in the axes, and the knives, and what else do you have over there? The medicines. I, I like what you have here, so we'll let you stay. We won't kill you. We won't eat you. But you know, we don't really want what you're trying to dish out to us. So this is a plot of darkness against the Sawi. The devil wants to entomb the Sawi in darkness. He wants to make them impermeable. So even if a dawn, Tuon Dawn, shows up and speaks to them the truth, it bounces off of them. You know, the grand agenda of uh, the Humanist Manifesto was that they would shape the culture of North America in such a way that if the gospel was ever preached, if the light of truth was ever spoken, they didn't call it that, that it would be repellent and it would just bounce off. That's always been the tactic of the devil. He wants to create, precondition a culture so that everything you say when you say Jesus, they go... They go, oh, you're one of those. They immediately discount what you're saying. And that's exactly what you see happening here. It's like, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> oh, you're trying to change us. I see what you're doing. Uh, no, Tuon, we want your acts. We don't want whatever's going on in there, that, that weird message you have. So I'm going to call that the plot of darkness against the Sawi, a devilish conspiracy, and it's against the Sawi. It's actually to harm them. They don't see it that way. They look at this as their brilliance, that they're so smart that they can listen to two on Don and mock it. They don't realize that that's actually harming them. So here's Don Richardson. Uh, he's sharing, he has spent, I don't know if it was two years at this time, learning the language. It's a very complex language. It's actually a very interesting study just to hear him describe the language because it's so much more, he thought it was going to be very simple, like these are very simple-minded people. It's like such a complex language, so much more complex than ours. It's like, whoa, what is this? And so he has to learn this language so that he can communicate the gospel. So could you imagine spending two years, all day long, every day, getting the gospel together in their language, and then finally he has the opportunity to sit down in the manhouse with the elders and share it. It's a big moment, okay? So here it is. He's been building up the story, sharing the gospel with them, and they're they're listening, you know, even though they're a bit distracted. At the climax of the story, Mom whistled a bird call of admiration. Connie and several others touched their fingertips to their chests in awe. Still others chuckled. So most of us are like, okay, this sounds good. Others chuckled. That doesn't sound good. At first, I sat there confused. Then the realization broke through. They were acclaiming Judas as the hero of the story. Yes, Judas, the one whom I'd portrayed as the satanically motivated enemy of truth and goodness. A feeling of coldness gripped my spine. I tried to protest that Jesus was good. He was the son of God, the savior. It was evil to betray him, but nothing I said would erase that gleam of savage enjoyment from their eyes. Connie leaned forward and exclaimed, that was real. Tui mon. You're going to learn a little Sawi here. Whatever Tui mon meant, I got up and left the man house, oppressed with a feeling of hopelessness. I looked across the swamp to the little home we had built. It looked like a monument to futility. Carol was dispensing medicine from the porch while Stephen played on a mat behind her. Was this the limit of the good we could do for the Sawi, bringing health to their physical bodies while the core of their beings remained remote and unreachable? The men were still discussing the story and laughing over it as I headed home. Alone in my study, I began to pray. But as I prayed, Connie's mysterious phrase kept going through my mind. After a while, I took a pen and wrote the strange expression on a three-by-five card, Tui Asanai Mon. Its basic parts were simple enough. Tui means pig. Asan is to catch. And with an AI ending, having caught. Man sim, man means simply to do, or mon means simply to do. Having caught a pig, to do? <laughs> to do what? I went to the door and called one of my language informants, Norai. When he arrived, I asked him to explain, Tui Mon. Norai looked through the window and pointed with his chin to a young pig which Hato had earlier captured in the jungle. Tamed, it was now roaming freely around the village yard. Tuan, when Hato first caught that pig... He kept it in his own home, fed it by hand, and protected it from the village dogs. Now that it is roaming about, he still throws down scraps of food for it every day. The pig feels secure, protected, well-fed. He is free to come and go as he pleases. But one day, when the pig is mature, what will happen to it? Hato and his family will butcher and eat it, I replied. But does the pig have any warning now of that coming event? Not the slightest, right? Naraya agreed. Tui Asanaiman means to do with a man as Hato is doing with that pig, to fatten him with friendship for an unsuspected slaughter. This is the great game of the sawi, Tui Asanaiman. The greatest virtue, the highest pinnacle of sawiness. It's a super sawi when you can betray your friend and eat him. This is not a healthy culture, people. And when they hear the gospel, what do they do? They touch their fingertips to their chest and whistle loudly, and they're like, "Whoa! What a super sawi is Judas! Judas is the super sawi! Ah, uh, no, 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 no! <laughs> Wrong direction on that one! Don't you see the virtue and the beauty and the goodness of Jesus? No, they see the super sawi, Judas." That's a difficult situation. I don't know if you felt that a little in our culture, where you love someone and they call it hate. You want to help someone that is stuck in a homosexual lifestyle and they look at it as you being judgmental. It's like, how how do you get past this? The super saw we in our culture is very different than Jesus. The ultimately politically correct man doesn't look much like Jesus. (laughs) And so as a result, we're dealing with something not altogether dissimilar from this, even though, yes, this is pretty extreme, I have to admit. Don Richardson continues. Now I thought I saw why, when I urged them to make peace, they replied, Tuon, you don't understand. See, he is, they have warring tribes. There's three different Sawi villages that all want to have Tuan Don as their Tuon. And so they're fighting over Tuon Don. It's humorous and terrible all at the same time. And so he's basically saying, Look, you guys have to make peace or I can't stay here because it's actually going to cause death. For me to be here is actually going to cause havoc. I can't remain unless you guys can make peace. And so here's this is why he's saying, Now I thought I saw why when I urged them to make peace, they replied, on, you just don't understand. Now I understood that when treachery is philosophically justified, true peace is impossible. Long, long ago, the ancestors of the saw, we had locked the entire culture into a ceaseless treadmill of war. Millenniums later, we had discovered the ancient treadmill still turning, the descendants still wearying themselves to keep from being ground under it. I wanted to let them off the treadmill. They had been on it so long, but I could see no way. How can you have trust when anytime you have any type of friendship, you have to immediately assume they're fattening you for slaughter? And so, as a result, there's no trust, which means there's no peace. It's a constant warring machine. The seeming impossibility of rescue. So, sometimes God needs to bring us to that place where it's impossible. Okay, in fact, if you understand story development, like say you're a scriptwriter, one of the most important things for every movie is to bring it to the place where it cannot be resolved in any way that the audience can see. And they're like hopeless, like, oh, no! Everything's lost. That's actually part of the strategy. Once you bring it to the place of everything is lost, then it's extremely satisfying when everything is saved. Isn't that funny? The same is true in the kingdom of heaven. Who came up with that whole thing? I mean, look at Jesus. He's on the cross. Your Messiah breathes his last. Oh, no. There's no hope here. Oh, but there is. How can there be hope out of that? Oh, just watch. Just wait. You're going to love it. It's so good. And so all throughout history, this same storyline seems to take place where you'll watch it, where God has to say, do you still trust me? And it gets darker. Do you still trust me? And it gets darker. You say, do you still, he says, do you still trust me? It goes black. Do you still trust me? I do. And everyone around you can say, how could you trust your God? All has gone black. Because he is faithful. I know he has a savior in the thicket. See, I just gave away the, the whole concept of the Savior in the thicket. Did I do that too too easily? Oh, was that a spoiler alert? The seeming impossibility of rescue. So Don Richardson says, I wanted to win this generation of Sawi, and I wanted to win them on their own ground and by their own fireplaces. If the gospel could not win men like Maheen, Connie, Hato, and Kigo, it was not the message it claimed to be. I was game, but I was also stymied. I didn't know how to tackle a cultural enigma, like this I headed home for lunch, groaning inwardly, "Lord, in all of time and space has your message ever encountered a worldview more opposite than this one? Could there be a worldview more opposite to the gospel, And has any man ever faced a communication problem bigger than this one you've assigned to me? Leslie and I have repeated this one quote many times, because that's exactly what we felt at times, and it's interesting when you hear someone actually say it, you're like, "Wait a minute, that's my quote. It's like Elijah saying, I'm the only prophet left. All of them are dead. And God says, there's 7,000 that haven't been there knee need Baal or kissed his feet. You see, it's often that we feel alone and that our situation is the hardest of all situations ever conceived on earth. And you have to admit, this is a pretty tough one, right? And so this could at least put your, pers- your situation into a little perspective. It's like, okay, maybe my challenge with the culture in America isn't as bad as that. But it is headed that way. See, the challenge with America is they think they know the truth. They think they know what Christians believe. That's our great challenge, is this antithesis has grown in the midst of our culture with an expectation that if you come to them as the Christian with the gospel, they're like, oh, I already know that. Yeah, I don't need that. But they actually haven't heard it. They've never experienced probably true Christianity. (laughs) And how do you get through the bubble of it? So I felt this, I have, and yet I can understand that what he's feeling is, yeah, it's. it's I could understand if I had given the gospel and they started cheering Judas, that would be a down, downer moment for me as a missionary. Okay, so this is the key part in the movie, this is the Rocky montage, but in, in inside of this, now Rocky, is, uh, I'm not trying to promote the idea of you going out and seeing the movie Rocky. It's just, I grew up with that one montage scene where Rocky always has to go through his training moment, and that's when the good song comes on, too. Uh, and when I was young, it was Eye of the Tiger. You know, and I actually got it on the piano, and I'd play it, and I'd sing it. Uh, it's the Eye of the Tiger. And I'd really get into that. Uh, and so, this is that montage scene in the movie where it's, I call it, beat the body into subjection. This is when he's doing his sit-ups and he's punching, you know, punching like, meat in the locker. This is, as a, as a man, I don't know if the girls like those scenes, but as a man, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but this is what each of us has to go through to break through that Esther moment where it's just like, but if I go in, I die but if you don't go in, you die. You see, this is the gospel. We're trying to hold on to our life, and God says, if you spare your life, you lose it. If you hold on to your life, you lose it. So what should you do? What is the most reasonable thing to do with your life in light of the kingdom realities? Give it up. Trust it to him. He cares for it. He's not going to waste it. And if, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if I die, I die. (laughs) But I'm standing for him. He is worthy of it. I trust my God. So this is that that part of the storyline, guys. This is a fun part. So Esther uh, 4, 13 through 16, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. This is the get-in-shape scene right here. This is this is good, guys. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, some of you didn't think of a manly voice for Esther in that, but that's the way I have to interpret it. That's good. That's the Rocky montage right there. We have someone who is saying, I'm getting in shape for this. It's time. Okay. I recognize it. I see it clearly. And right now, I don't think the body of Christ is at that point. I'm not saying that no one in the body of Christ is at that point, but I'd say the church at large is still hoping everything will go away. Just if they sleep long enough, maybe they'll wake up tomorrow and everything will be back the way they wanted it to be. And yet that isn't how it happens. We need our rocky montage. We need to hear afresh the words of Mordecai that says, if you hold on to your life, you will lose it, Esther. But if you give it up, you might find that there's a savior in the thicket. In other words, this is the message of the gospel throughout the ages. You hold on to your life, you die. You give it up, you find the glory of God is manifest in this earth. Uh, The great plot twist. So at this time, when everything looks dark, this is when God brings in his great plot twist. Esther 6.1, that night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Isn't this amazing? So all is dark. I mean, they're about to annihilate the Jews, and the king can't sleep. And so what does he do? He calls on uh, to bring the book of the records of the chronicles so that they could be read before him. I mean, why, why would that matter? Well, in those records, he is going to hear of a rescue, a, a life-saving rescue on his life that was, he was saved by a guy named Mordecai, the Jew. And so that's going to turn the king the next day to actually want to favor Mordecai. I mean, what are the odds of that? team. A God's conspiracy for the Sawi caught in the thicket of Sawi tradition. So you've already learned tui asanaimon, but now you're going to learn a different term. And this is, in a sense, the plot twist. See, in this Sawi culture is a conspiracy of the devil to make them immune to the gospel. So that no matter what you do, they're going to cheer on Judas. And yet, in the midst of this same Depraved, decadent culture. God's going to hide something in the thicket of it. It's truly remarkable, and it's called the Tarok team. And I'm going to call it a God conspiracy for the Sawi caught in the thicket of Sawi tradition. And Don Richardson doesn't even know it's there, so he's looking at this culture, going, "They are so gone that I have no idea how to reach them." So, context. He is basically thrown down the gauntlet and says, I'm leaving. You're going to lose your uh, Tuon if you guys can't make peace. And he knows that they likely can't, but he cannot have the bloodshed because he's there. I mean, he feels like he's doing the exact opposite for them. He's harming them by staying as opposed to helping them. So they came to him and told them the next day they were going to make peace. So stay, Tuon. We're going to make peace. So that's the context. Make Peace? <laughs> I echoed unbelievingly, for what the speaker actually said was, "'Tomorrow we are going to sprinkle cool water on each other.'" Cool water is Sawi idiom for peace. Sprinkling cool water on each other could only mean make peace. But did they really mean it? According to my analysis of their cultural predicament, it should not be possible for them to achieve more than a mutual standoff through sheer physical separation of forces unless one side was gullible enough to trust the other completely." which was unlikely in view of well-remembered Sawi history. So either they were shamming it, or else my analysis was about to be exploded, I hoped for the latter. But I could not imagine what proof of sincerity they could give to rule out the possibility of Tui Asanai Mon. We hardly slept that night, wondering what what daybreak would bring. Few of the Sawis slept either. Through most of the night, we could hear their voices murmuring under the shrill carrier signals of myriad cicadas. As dawn returned color and life to brooding longhouses, the, the jungle and the shimmering river, Carol and I were watching from our window. This is such an amazing scene in history right here that is going to happen, and we're going to, like, watch it. Tangy smoke from cooking fires drifted up through thatch roofs. Roosters crowed, dogs yelped, pigs groveled for sago crumbs under the longhouses, but hardly a man, woman, or child could be seen. Apart from the animal noises, it was deathly quiet, just as it had often been before a battle. Then we saw Mahin and his oldest wife climb down from their longhouse in Hanam, and head toward Kamur. Now other people from Hanam, men, women, and children, climbed down also and stood silently watching as Mahin and his wife moved away from them. Mahin was carrying a child one of his own sons, on his back. His wife, Seato, was sobbing violently. Carol and I moved tensely out onto our porch. Now the people of Camur were descending en masse from their longhouses also. Tension mounted as hundreds of eyes, including our own, followed the progress of Maheen and his weeping wife. The trio was closer to us now, and Carol touched my arm apprehensively as we both saw the grim determination on Mahin's face and the tears streaming from Seato's eyes. The child clinging to Maheen's neck seemed passive and unaware of anything unusual. The woman woman Sayado looked over Mahin's shoulder and saw the people of Kamur massed and waiting, staring at the three in anticipation. She began to shudder convulsively, either from fear or deep sorrow. We're not sure, we were not sure which. Wiping the tears from her eyes, she suddenly wrenched the little boy from her husband's shoulders and bore him swiftly back from Hainam, screaming as she ran. Mahin raced after her, trying to wrest the child from her arms, but Sayado clung to the little boy with a strength born of desperation. Mahin's oldest son, Giriam, ran forward from the crowd and intervened on his mother's behalf. With a roar of frustration, Mahin turned his back on them both and stalked back and forth in front of Hainam, shouting something unintelligible to us. Clearly, Sayato and Giriman had impeded his purpose, whatever it was. Now suddenly, other women of Hainam were clutching their babies close to their breasts, crying out in apprehension. Men were running back and forth, gesturing, shouting. The village was in turmoil. A loud shout from Kamur drew our attention. Something was happening in the center of our village. Leaving Carol on our porch, I ran to a better vantage point and watched intently. I saw a man named Sanal raise a little boy baby boy over his head for all of us for all to see. Then his features contorted with unspeakable anguish. Sanal handed the child to his brother Atai. I can't bear to hand him over myself, he cried. Atai, you do it for me. Atai took the baby and strode purposely toward Hanam. But Sanal, the father, could not turn his eyes away from the helpless form of his baby son. The baby was like a powerful magnet drawing him, eyes brimming with tears, fingers writhing in despair. Sanal suddenly leaped toward the child, shouting, I've changed my mind. I can't let him go. Sanal snatched his little son out of Atai's arms. No one seemed to blame him, but neither did the uproar cease. Strange opposing forces of attraction and repulsion were building up an incredible tension between Hanam and Kamur. From my vantage point between the two villages, I could feel those forces crackling around me with an almost physical violence. The hair on the back of my neck began to crawl as I observed both villages in complete turmoil, as if travailing over some momentous plan that couldn't quite come to birth. Then out of the corner of my, I'm guessing it's supposed to be corner, out of the corner of my eye, I half noticed a husky Kamur man named Kayo turn away from the crowd and climb up quickly into his longhouse. Kayo's heart was pounding as he slipped away from his wife, Wumi, and ascended the stairpole into his home. Mahin had failed. Sanao had failed. Both Mahin and Sanao had many children, yet neither could bring himself to give even one. Kayo had only one child, six-month-old Viakodon. Lying there on the grass mat, Kayo approached the baby tensely, his heart wrenching within him at the thought of what he was about to do. Biakadon looked up at his father and smiled in recognition. He doubled his tiny brown fists and waved his arms in anticipation of being picked up. It's necessary, Kayo reminded himself. There's no other way to stop the fighting. And if the fighting does not stop, the Tuan will leave. Kayo reached down and picked up Biakadon. Alone in the empty longhouse, he held the soft, warm, gurgling body of his son close to his chest one last time. He thought of the grief his deed would bring to Wumi, but there was no other way. Kaio looked toward the bright doorway at the far end of the longhouse and began to walk toward it, his limbs trembling, his visage contorted by the conflicting emotions raging within him. Biakadon's mother, Wumi, stood in the midst of the jostling, shouting crowd, absorbed in the common suspense of wondering whether there would be peace or not. Naturally, if anyone would bring himself to the point of handing over a child, it would be someone who had many children and therefore would not miss, would not miss one of them too badly. That was the reason it was out of the question for Wumi and Kaio to consider giving Biakadon. But, she wondered, where is Kaio? He had been standing right there beside her a few moments before. With a twinge of unease, Wumi's black eyes flashed toward the longhouse, just in time to see her husband leap down from the far end and begin running toward Hainam with Biakadon in his arms. For a moment, Wumi stood frozen with shock and disbelief, telling herself it was only a coincidence that, that, coincidence that Kayo was heading that way with Biakadon. Then, settling the knowledge that it was not a coincidence, struck her with crushing weight. Wumi screamed and ran after Kaio, pleading with all the force of her soul. But Kaio never looked back. His broad back kept growing smaller with distance as he raced ahead of her. Wumi felt her feet sinking in the mire of a small bog. In her anguish, she had missed the trail. There was no hope now. He was f- too far ahead. He had almost reached the waiting crowd among the Hainam longhouses. Even the hope that at the last second he would turn back of his own volition was gone. With a piteous cry, Wumi let herself collapse into the slime in which she had become mired. Writhing uncontrollably, she kept repeating plaintively, "Viakadon, Viakadon, my son. Kaya is actually going to hand over, he's going to pick a man and hand over Viakadon to him. And there's going to be a vow between them. And then one of the uh, the other tribesmen from the other tribe, the competing tribe, is going to take one of his sons, And hand it over. And they're going to literally call each other by each other's names now. Biakadon and Mani, meanwhile, were carried up into the manhouses in their respective adoptive villages to be decorated for a peace celebration. It was the first time I could recall seeing so many Sawi men gathered together without a single weapon of war on their persons. While the babies were being adorned, young men stuck feathers in their hair, brought out their drums, and began to dance. I managed to draw one of them aside. I had some questions to ask. The young man's, man's name was Ari. Exuberantly, he explained what had taken place. Kyo has given his son to Hainam as a Turok team, a peace child. And Mahin, in return, has given a Turok team to us. Why is this necessary, I asked. one, you've been urging us to make peace. Don't you know it's impossible to have peace without a peace child? Don Richardson continues. What will happen to Biakadon and Mani, I asked. Will they be harmed? I was still on guard, lest the joy these unpredictable people were expressing was only a deceptive prelude to human sacrifice. Or in case later, if someone violated the peace agreement, Biakadon and Mani might be slaughtered as hostages. Ari hastened to reassure me. They will not be harmed, Tuan. he said. In fact, both our villages will guard the lives of these Tarope children even more zealously than they protect their own offspring. For if Biakadon dies, Kamur will no longer be bound to a peace agreement with Hainam. And if Mani dies, Hanam will no longer be bound to a peace agreement with us. I was both relieved and concerned. Relieved to know that the two babies were in no danger of mistreatment. Concerned because with infant mortality rates so high, the peace that had just been purchased at such high cost and human feeling could be lost before it had barely begun. An accidental fall into the river, a chance encounter with a death adder, or a sudden attack of cerebr- cerebral malaria, and the awesome sacrifice would be rendered invalid. The parental agony ineffectual. So I muse, this peace depends upon the continuing life of the peace child involved. Among the sawi, every demonstration of friendship was suspect, except one. If a man would actually give his own son to his enemies, that man could be trusted. That and that alone was a proof of goodwill no shadow of cynicism could discredit. Are you guys seeing it yet? Do you see the... Savior that is caught in the thicket of the Sawi culture. And everyone who laid his hand on the given son was bound not to work violence against those who gave him. Haman hangs on his own gallows. That which the enemy contrives and builds to destroy the people of God, to destroy the truth of God, actually becomes the very weapon that God uses to turn the tide. It's the plot twist. Think about the cross. The cross is a weapon developed by evil people. Satan is going to enter Judas, it says. Satan is going to conspire to move Judas unto a place of betrayal. This is a work of the devil. Everything about it is a conspiracy against the Son of God to destroy him, to wipe him out. And yet, the very weapon that is being masterminded by the enemy is going to crush the head of the one that's masterminding it. That's the realities of the gospel right there. That storyline is the same storyline throughout the Bible and the same storyline right now. That even though it may look as if the enemy has the upper hand, God is ultimately going to crush the enemy's plans. There is a plot twist. There always is. One of the illustrations I gave this last year was the boxing uh, analogy. And that is you have the young boxer and you have the seasoned boxer. And the young boxer comes out and he sees this old man. And he's like, boy, uh, old man, your time is over. Make room for the young guys. And he comes out and he just starts throwing all of his best punches. He wants to knock this guy out in the first round and show everyone that he is the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And no longer does the old guy going to wear that belt. So the young guy, in his arrogance and pride, is going to actually give away all of his moves. And the old guy isn't going to do anything but be defensive, maybe even the first three rounds. And everyone, even the announcers are like, does this guy still have it? I mean, look at him. He hasn't even thrown a good punch. Not one good punch for the first three rounds. And yet the young guy's like, he's sweating away. He cannot get a good, he can't land a good punch on the old guy. But the old guy has figured something out in the meantime. He knows exactly where the weak points are. And a counter punch is what the old guy is preparing for. And that is when the young guy overswings because he's overconfident, the old guy is waiting. And at the perfect moment, he might only get one punch in the whole bout. Boom! He knocks him out. And then he looks, stands over the young guy and says, "Uh, you're messing with the wrong guy. See, God is the old boxer. And at times it may look like maybe he's grown tired. Maybe he's grown a little feeble because this young boxer's coming out and making a whole bunch of noise. But the young boxer's giving everything away. And the very efforts of the young boxer are going to play against him in the end. Haman hangs on his own gallows. Esther 7.10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. The book of Esther is a picture of the gospel. It just is. Everything about it is a picture of the gospel, and it is profound. Don Richardson. This is a key moment in the story, and it's really beautiful. Now, as I climbed up into the Hanam Yahweh manhouse... I felt again a wave of that bracing excitement, which was more than just my own. You see, he has been preparing for months now to make a fresh presentation of the gospel based on what he has learned in and through this. And here it is. He says, you saw how horrified I was when Cayo gave you Viacodon, I said, snapping alternative, alternate fingers as we saw we do at a point of tension. When I saw Wumi writhing out her sorrow in the mud, I was almost ready to rush in among you, seize Viakadon, and give him back to his mother. Mahin, Mahor, and others sat in silence, tracking my line of thought. I kept saying to myself, oh, that they could make peace without this painful giving of a son. But you kept saying, there is no other way. I leaned forward and placed my right hand palm down on the sago frond floor. You were right. Every eye in the manhouse was fixed upon me. When I stopped to think about it, I realized you and your ancestors are not the only ones who found that peace required a peace child. Mayokadon, who's the clean white spirit, it's the name for God in the Sawi language that Don came up with. Mayokadon, the spirit whose message I bear, has declared the same thing. True peace can never come without a peace child. Never. Somehow the Sawi had forgotten the formality of repeating everything I said. It didn't seem necessary now. They had stopped thinking of me as a visitor in their manhouse. Because Kadon wants men to find peace with him and with each other, he decided to choose a once-for-all Tarope child, good enough and strong enough, to establish peace, not just for a while, but forever. The problem was, whom should he choose? For among all human children, there was no son good enough or strong enough to be an eternal tarope. I paused and searched their faces. Their curiosity level was rising. Whoever did he choose, asked Mahin, toasting a stick of beetle grubs over his cooking fire. I answered with another question. Did Kayo give another man's son or his own? He gave his own, they replied. Did Mahin give another man's son or his own? I gave my own, he replied, remembering the agony. So did God. I exclaimed, following suddenly on Mahin's reply and then looking sideways at the wall, a gesture meaning, think about that. I continued, like Kyle, God had only one son to give, and like Kyle, he gave him away. The child you gave, Mahin, was no cast-off you wanted to get rid of. He was your beloved son. But the son God gave was even more beloved. Mahin twitched his nose, a way of saying, I understand. I have noticed how you respect words passed down from the ancestors. Hear now what ancestors of the Tuwans say about the tarope child from God. I opened an English Bible and translated part of Isaiah's prophecy into Salwi. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince, Tarope of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. And again from John's Gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The men leaned forward, gazing at the strange little cluster of leaves lying open in my hand. That's the Bible. It was a strange cluster of leaves. Amazed at the message that had been trapped inside it and at my ability to spring that message out of it from, for them. Mahin looked at me and asked, Is he the one you've been telling us about? Yesus? He's the very one, I replied. But you said a friend betrayed him. If Jesus was a trope, it was very wrong to betray him. We have a name for that. We call it Tarope Gamon. It's the worst thing anyone could do. You're right again, I said, looking Mahin in the eye. Despising the Tarope child of God is the worst thing anyone can do. I mused inwardly. Before this moment, Judas had been a super sawy. Now he was a villain. Tell us more, Mahin said, laying aside his stick of toasted beetle grubs. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? in the midst of this culture that was wired, designed to reject God, to reject the gospel, and to make Judas the hero, in the midst of it was a savior in the thicket that they could understand. It does, I mean, in a strange way, it makes romance, I'm sorry, it makes missions romantic, doesn't it? You know, It's like, I want to find that which is in the thicket. I want to find that. And God probably is wanting to lean in and say, do you? Because I would love to show you. And I see no reason why we shouldn't allow this to be our starting place right here, this culture. Because we have all sorts of mysteries and a lot of us have just given up. They don't want to hear. Yeah, I I can't speak to them. Imagine what the Tarot team would be for the Taliban or ISIS. In other words, these are people that God loves and desires to pursue. But like Esther, we have a tendency to see that if we pursued them, we could lose our life. Yes. But are we willing to go through the rocky montage and allow the Spirit of God to ready us so that we are willing to say along with Esther, if I perish, I perish. I see a higher call. I see why God has placed me here. For all of us in here, we need to realize why we have been acquainted with Jesus Christ. Why we have been introduced. Why we have been chosen. Why do we know what we know? So that we can bury it? Or so that we can share it? But if I share it, then this could happen. You could fill in the blank of what this is. For most of us, it's that we would be rejected and people might laugh at us. It's like, come on, that actually isn't as extreme as some of these other people are facing. But we need to allow God to ready us. We need a montage scene in our spiritual life. We need a montage scene in the church where we get in shape and we rise up to the task. In the thicket, there is always a means of salvation. Always. Puritans called this a means of grace. They believed in every trial and every situation that seemed impossible, God had a solution. Some of you know that is wisdom, that if you ever come into the darkest place with no exit and you can't figure out how to get out of it, what do you do? You say, God, I know you have a way out. Could you supply it to me? And we know that if any of us asks for that wisdom, he will give it. That means it's always there. That means there is wisdom for each situation. There is a savior in the thicket. There is a God answer to every challenge we could face. And this is what our faith is good for. It's not just to believe that he died for us 2,000 years ago, but that he ever lives to make intercession for us, that he ever lives to help us solve life's riddles, that he ever lives to help us reach the sawi, that he ever lives to crack the code of culture. He knows the culture I know, it's sort of a funny thing to think that he knows the Sawi. It's like, God, you would not hang out with them. I mean, this is demonically controlled stuff. And yet he loves them. And he is moving Don and Carol seven years before they get there. He's speaking to them about reaching them. And then he's preparing them. And then even when they get to the island, that opportunity opens up. Another missionary organization actually had that zone. That missionary organization, right before Don and Carol arrive, are going to say, yeah, if you guys could take this, we would like someone from uh, RBMU to be able to take this zone. So they arrive and then, then they say, Hey, would you guys be open to this? Don and Carol are like, if I perish, I perish. They're ready to go to a very difficult situation. Southwest, Erie and Jaya is the worst part. It is the hottest part, the biggest bugs. Who wants to go there? They do. And they go to the hardest place, but they were designed for this. Can you think of someone better than Don Richardson for this? It's like he's built for it, for such a time as this. Is it possible that you're designed for such a time as this right now? You've been placed strategically on this earth, exactly where you're at, with the knowledge that you have, so that you could activate it, not bury it. It's very easy for us to pull an Esther in this situation and plead, God, have me excused. But are we willing to enter into the calling we have received? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. So here's our missionary motto of Stanley Dale. And by the way, for those of you that are thinking Stanley Dale's a really good looking guy. uh, Yes, he is. That's really not Stanley Dale though. And so just as a reminder, that's a... Uh, borrowed picture. Since I don't have a picture of Stanley Dale, uh, that's Ernest Shackleton, young Ernest Shackleton, an adventurer in his own right. Uh, but he's, he's a good face for, uh, for Stanley Dale throughout this series. So here's the missionary motto of Stanley Dale. Going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. And then we've been giving prayers for each one of these messages. And so this is like a great Prayer board, right here. Okay, so each of the messages, we're on message five, has a prayer. Lord, prepare me for the heavenly call. That's from the first message, the legend maker. Lord, refine my taste buds for all heavenly delicacies. That's passing on the casu marzu. Number three, Lord, season me, toughen me, and prepare me for all difficulty. That's inured for danger. Number four, Lord, may I be preoccupied with that which preoccupies you. That's the message, fretting like a lion. And then today's, Lord may I uncover that which is in the thicket for my Sawi tribe. Father, I pray that you would awaken us and stir us unto action. Do not let the moss grow on our souls. May we not try and justify our inactivity, but Lord, may we be moved out of our lethargy into a place of activity. Lord, you are faithful and true, and we stand back in awe and wonder at your ways. Hang Haman on his own gallows. Bring the plot twist, Lord. Bring the counterpunch. Lord, awaken your church, your sleeping giant. Lord, and may there be a response in this hour. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.